I'm Jared Bias, and this is How to Disagree, a mini-series based on my book, Love Matters More, where we explore the question, how do we love people well when we disagree about important things? Hey, hey, welcome to How to Disagree. Today, we're talking with D.S. Leiter, PhD in communication, teaches communication studies, and founder of the Assertive Spirituality Project, which you can find at assertivespirituality.com. And you can get a free guide to trolls there on that website, assertivespirituality.com. Listen, I love smart people. As you'll learn in this episode, D.S. Leiter is a smart person. And D.S. reached out to me a few years ago to give me some direct feedback, and I'm, I'm so grateful for it. Uh, she's taught me a lot about communication the past few years. I'm excited to have her share her experience from the perspective of an, of an accommodator, a blind spot for me in tough conversations as, as an aggressor, and you'll learn more about what those words mean. She talks about the importance of finding your voice, creating room for yourself, learning to accept our limitations. Overall, just a wonderful episode. So enjoy, D.S. Leiter. Well, welcome to the podcast, D.S. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. So let's start with why you're here, because you are an expert. You're very smart in these kinds of things. So just a little about your background and maybe why why were you interested in communication and these kinds of things? Okay, yeah, that's a long story, but we'll try to keep it short. <laughs> um, my name's Dias Leiter, and I um, grew up as a pastor's kid, and I feel like in, in the midst of Midwest Christian nice, and so this sort of situation where often we learn to spiritualize accommodation as the strongest form of conflict. Um, and I didn't realize that this is how I grew up in and that we absorb so much of our culture around us um, in our spirituality until I got to be an adult and eventually floundered my way into a PhD in communication <laughs> and then found myself studying stress, trauma, and conflict communication, which I sort of went into through the back door. Um, and just in the last few years, I've especially found it really important. I came into this religio-political era having studied fascism and having studied stress, trauma, and conflict communication, and I took a whole PhD course in the rhetoric of conspiracy. So in this particular moment, I felt like I couldn't not start a project to speak into this era. And so for the last three, three plus, through about three and a half years, I guess, I've been doing the Assertive Spirituality Project, which is my project to try to help people be assertive in this era and the fact that assertiveness was something that didn't seem normally paired with the sort of spiritual uh, with spirituality was an odd thing and I was like oh no one's taken this this particular um URL. This must be a sign that there's a need for this. Yeah absolutely. So in you know a little, a little background on us, if I can out you real quick, is when I was working on Loves Matters More, Love Matters More, I was putting the feelers out there, I was putting things up, and I don't remember what I said, but you basically replied in a very um, direct but kind way to say, hey, Jared, you're really only coming at this from the aggressor's side of things. What about the people who don't feel comfortable speaking up or having a voice in these conflicts? Maybe you could speak to them too. And after I got my feelings hurt a little bit, I thought you are absolutely right. And so, jumped on a call and you just were so enlightening and so helpful to me to teach me about some of these things. So, that's what I'm hoping too that we can do here, um, get a little bit of that introduction. So, earlier we were talking about this idea of, of continuation climate 
or a continuum of things. Can you map out some of what, what would scholars say we're doing when we're in conflict with people we disagree with here? Okay, so there's a communication climate, which is like you know, climate change, right? A climate is not the same as the weather of a particular day. So a communication climate is weather of a relationship over time. It can be stormy, it can be cold, it can be, you know, like warm and sunny a bunch chunk of the time, right? And so what this really boils down to, and they look at this in the study of marriages, right, um, John Gottman, that it's it's the ratio of confirming to disconfirming communication. And confirming communication is valuing communication that makes us feel valued. And disconfirming communication is the opposite. It makes us feel de- devalued and often attacked or put down in some way. And so there's this continuum of confirming communication and disconfirming communication. And it's sort of in the eye of the beholder or with the relationship, but it's a very visceral feeling that we get, right? It's a stress response or it's happiness connection feeling right one or the other and sometimes a combination and so one of the important things is that disagreement is on the road to disconfirming a good chunk of the time and so it's a spot where if you want to disagree with someone you have to work a little bit harder either if you've got a good strong existing rapport with the person non-threatening space um, good communication climate going on then you can often handle more disagreement but you have to do it in a way that the other person isn't going to find disconfirming so there's often negotiation around these things um, but if one person just wants to bully the other person and set all the rules in how the communication goes then that's going to lead to a very negative climate a good chunk of the yeah, time. Say more about that because I do think, again, this is a, a blind spot for me because I'm often kind of an aggressor in in these conversations. If someone is, you know, what's what do you feel like is an appropriate, and I would use the word love just because, again, my book is Love Matters More and I don't want to disclude things like boundaries and, and all the perspectives in a way of being loving. Sometimes I feel like we have it either or. That's We, we have to just sort of take whatever abuse comes our way if we're going to be loving. What's an approach to make sure that you your voice is heard or that you can at least enter into a space to say, hey, how about I try to set some rules for myself? Like, what are some ways to do that? Well, like the term assertiveness is such an important thing. And I'm a recovering avoider accommodator of conflict myself, right? Uh, Which we discussed before, like you're a recovering aggressor and I'm a a, a recovering avoider accommodator, right? We, we, I was trained that the spiritual thing was to give in, right? (laughs) That was, that was what we were supposed to do. And, you know, realized later on, it was like other things that were going on, right? Um, And so it's important to remember that there's often our stress responses are at the heart of this, right? So stress is a feeling of threat. And often there's good reason for that. So if we can sort through and figure out, hey, is there a valid threat um, in this situation? Or are my stress responses a little bit overactive in this situation? But the more we know what, what way we tend to, you know, am I a person who tends to like, shut down and not speak up, right? If there's an extreme situation of that, you may need trauma therapy to retrain your neurobiology. But it doesn't mean that the people who made you that way are safe people necessarily, right? And so I think it's really important to recognize that like, 
the flight response from a conversation isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? Like there are going to be situations where it genuinely is going to be unsafe for us. And so like honoring the fact that our stress responses are there to try to save us and help us, um, they're genuinely survival instincts. And um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, I would say. And so recognizing that like, hey, I have the right to take care of my needs. And that may mean speaking up in this situation. It may mean like saying, I'm not up for this conversation anymore. And often figuring out ahead of time, especially if you're going to deal with someone that you disagree with, like, okay, this is this is going to be over the line, right? And so at this point, I'm going to say I'm not comfortable engaging in this conversation anymore. But also just, you know, figuring out ways to cope with whatever way you lean specifically, right? If you know that you're being aggressive, or you come from that background, talk with the other person about, okay, what would you find over the line? And so then we can, it's way easier to guide a conversation back to rules that you've set up than it is to pull it back without having discussed that ahead of time. It's common, common practice to set up some, uh, some agreements about how you're going to discuss in a disagreeing communication practice. Yeah. And that's a really, that's a really practical thing that I think anyone can maybe work on is how we set expectations up front before, or even we, maybe we catch ourselves a few minutes into a conversation to say, hold, hold up, before we go any further, let's maybe set up some ground rules here. So I don't want to leave with us with hurt feelings or, you know, feeling hurt in general. So how do we set some ground rules up? So would you say that's a really practical thing to Super practical. work on? Yeah. And it's okay. really important. And it's something that, you know, I've had a lot of you know, various personal relationships where I've had people who have deeply disagreed with me religio-politically, and some of them, like, I have to set stronger boundaries with, like, I can't talk to you very regularly, and other people I have to just, uh, you know, we can say, okay, we just can't talk about this topic, or if we do, we'll have to pull ourselves back, right? Um, and then say, you know, I care about you. And often like resetting up the respect and valuing is really important after you pu- have to pull back from that. So you mentioned you are a, a recovering accommodator. So can you just go into more specifics about what that means? Like kind of, you might be an accommodator if, and then how did you, what do you mean by recovering? Like what, what how do you recover? Like what are the traits that you've worked on? Okay, so I was trained that, and I didn't even realize like there was a lot of passive aggression in the people I grew up around and that's how it comes out, right? Like it's not like there's not aggression when you're in a culture of this. It just means that there are things that you're not supposed to talk about um, and you're not supposed to bring up needs that you have in a particular situation, right? Um, And you're not supposed to assertively ask to be treated well in certain circumstances, right? And so you get trained into what they call the fawn response, stress response, where you are needing to befriend the threat um, in this situation, which by the way, is also the root of a lot of domestic violence situations and why it's so hard for people to walk away. And so it's an important thing to recognize this is super visceral 
And it's not an easy thing to change. It can get deeply ingrained into how we respond to the world. Um, I think it's why I didn't want to take public speaking. I was trained I wasn't supposed to have a voice. Um, And I didn't realize this until I was an adult. And I'd gotten out of a particular relationship that where I really realized like I was not speaking up for myself and I didn't have all the terms to put to it then, but I was like, I need to change the way I deal with conflict. And so I gave myself a training regimen and it took like five or six years and it's still something that's going on. But honestly, like I've had times and this stuff gets very physical, literally had to like warm up my voice because it goes into vocal vocal fry if I don't warm it up well, because my voice, my throat will sometimes, I've presented about trauma at conferences. I'm not supposed to talk about trauma. Um, so I've had times where my throat has felt like it, it literally closed up. I teach students who are trying to get out of public speaking end up in my classes, and they end up like a lot of them have these similar kinds of um, concerns or anxieties about speaking up and speaking up for themselves. And so yeah, that uh, that accommodator is someone who just needs to let the other person win in a certain situation where there's conflict, or just avoid the subject altogether, right? It's a very strong what we call freeze or flight uh, response to to conflict situations. The word that came to mind is is agreeable. Is that does that also the kind of the accommodators like it's it's I've just had people where I'm talking to them and I know they don't agree with me because I know them. But when I say things they're agreeing with me the whole time and then we just end and they don't ever like if if I want them to disagree with me I almost have to like speak for them like hey I I know you don't agree with that that's okay can you tell me more I have to kind of really if I don't they're just going to say yeah mm -hmm, oh I see yeah mm -hmm." and it kind of I think they've like learned how to not completely agree but it feels like they're agreeing and is that kind of that accommodator thing yeah it's often having been trained in an environment where you were taught that it isn't safe for you to disagree Um, And like when I teach listening responses in class, we go through this whole list of support responses. And the first one is always agreement. And I'm like, yeah, a lot of us sort of want people to agree with us, right? It's a normal thing. Here's a bunch of other things you can do. (laughs) Even if you disagree, you can provide, you know, like, hey, you look cold. Can you, do you need a jacket and provide some tangible support or, You know, I can't agree with you on everything, but here's a thing that I do agree with you on. And those were actually really helpful things for me. Like, I didn't have all those tools when I was starting this journey. But as I moved on in it, as I was teaching this stuff, I I started using these same techniques, like agree with what you can to make space to disagree after that. Um, and train your voice that it's okay once you've agreed to low. If you can see that the person's stress response has been lowered a bit, then it's okay to bring up your own thing, right? And try to meet both people's needs as much as possible. Because I was always trained, and I think this is often the case um, in the church too, like we, a lot of the people who have the, the louder voices are saying, because they know they need to pipe down, right? That, that you know, it's Jesus, others, and then yourself, right? So therefore, 
you need to just never have needs as opposed to, and I found it really helpful for healing to, to realize, hey, it's okay for me to look out for both people's needs as much as possible. There's not a hierarchy there, right? Which was way easier than jumping to, okay, sometimes I need to stand up and my needs are better than the other person's, which is also situationally the case, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah, that's a like a step, it's a gateway to getting to a more nuanced view is just to at least say, hey, your needs are equally as valid as this other person's. Yeah. And that's actually what assertiveness is anyway, right? It's looking out for both people's needs as much as you can. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you mentioned tools and techniques, and you maybe kind of hinted at this a little bit with warming up your voice and other things. But if someone is in this place where they're the the accommodator and they want to learn how to have a voice, you know, I've, again, I've had people, unfortunately, I have a lot of negative experiences because I was the aggressor. So I, I'm sort of like looking at this from the other perspective where I'm in a conversation and they just get so upset, like they, they can't say anything. They just kind of cry, but then they get mad at themselves because they're crying. How how can we help people? Like, what tools do you use or have you used for yourself to become more assertive in a way that's not, again, it's not aggressive and it's not about supplanting the other person's needs with yours. It's just having a voice in these conversations. Yeah, I mean, some of it, honestly, um, it depends. Like, I mean, obviously, there are things you can do to think your way out of it and to practice your way out of it. And then there are things that need trauma therapy. (laughs) Um, And so it's important to recognize that sometimes um, that's needed as well, right? There's some great trauma therapy approaches that have popped up in recent years. EMDR is one of them. Um, It goes to a lot of, it has you work through unprocessed memories um, to retrain your neurobiology so that like you can release some of that stuff. Uh, And a lot of times there's trauma at the root of some of this stuff. And so retraining your neurobiology is one way that can be really helpful. Uh, You don't have to feel stuck about this stuff forever. Um, It can take a while, and I wish everyone had access to mental health treatment. I wish it wasn't treated as mental health because it's actually very physical. But yeah, there's a lot lot that can be helpful there. Um, But yeah, uh, some sort of practical communication ways is that whole, like, agree with what you can first. Because if you're a recovering of avoid or accommodator, that's going to come naturally anyway. So it's the easier thing to do. And then make space for yourself to, if it feels safe after you've agreed with what you can, then you can do the disagreeing. And also like open conversations, like we were talking about setting the ground rules, having those conversations when you're out of a conflict situation with a person that you plan to bring stuff up with, that will be really, really helpful. And just asking for enough information that you that you can you feel like you can speak into understanding the other person. Well, and I think for some people, maybe even helping them identify that is you, you use the word trauma, and I think maybe normalizing that more and more because I think some people are like, "Well, I didn't have trauma," and they mean it in some really uh, you know extreme way instead of saying. No, you know, there would maybe even just three or four occasions where you were in a public setting and you were told to sit down and be quiet 
um, or these things that are just so when you say trauma that might inform accommodators like what are some maybe examples or, or things that might help people identify to say oh yeah okay maybe that was trauma okay first let me give an example that I always give in my classes about like a trauma situation. Trauma just means you've had too much stress and your your body processed it that way, right? And it was like, I had too much stress. I have to protect you going forward in this kind of situation. So I had a situation where I was nine and I went blackberry picking and I got stung by a hornet. Blackberries for a decade after that time <laughs> tasted like hornets to me. I couldn't tell you exactly what that tastes like, but I knew what it tasted like, right? It was just my brain was being really vigilant for hornets when it came to blackberries. And then it went away and it was fine again, right? <laughs> and blackberries are great now. But that is the kind of thing, like our brain can take anything and be like, that was a really dangerous situation. I'm trying to keep you safe. And so it could just be, a time when you were early in childhood or, you know, you were shut down in a situation where you were speaking up. There could be all sorts of things and it could be a pattern, right? Like it could be one big event or a few events, um, but our childhood experiences process things as really big things. And it could be a bunch of small things over time, right? There may not be one huge thing. It could just be a whole bunch of little things. It could be the theology of accommodation, right? And that stuff can take a while to unwrap. And it's important to give ourselves as much patience as possible as we're recovering from these things, right? Especially if you have a history of being told that it was literally, I mean, there can be spiritual trauma associated with these things, right? Because it's one thing if your your household is a particular way, but if your household is a particular way, and then it's held up as like the best thing by the church, that's going to be a problem, right? Which is why I think we need voices from people who have been marginalized um, in, in the world so that we can, and that's why we need to fight these, these impulses, right? Of, of, staying down um, because we need more of these voices to, to speak up and speak up for. But we also need to recognize like sometimes our traumas do limit us and that's normal too. And it, we shouldn't be expected, expect ourselves or others to be perfect and be able to overcome all this stuff <laughs> in a moment. Yeah. Well, let's turn the table then because you mentioned churches and where I was thinking about was for those of us who you know, for me, I, I became aware in my 20s that I was aggressive in a way that wasn't creating a safe place for people who I was assuming that everyone was like me. And so I wanted to spar and spar, you know, for me, conflict brought intimacy and connection. Like it was, it energized me. It was great. And I assumed that for other people and I hurt a lot of people. So once I became aware of that, I recognized more and more as I got older, my responsibility to create space for people who don't enter conflict like I do. So when we think of the church and we think of these institutions, what are ways, because I'm, I'm well aware, unfortunately, that a lot of these spaces do privilege the loud and the aggressive. How do we, if that's, if that's us, that's me, how do those of us be more aware? Like what are the practical things we can do to create space for more voices to enter? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And it's a really important question. And one of the things, I mean, 
honestly, my classrooms are full of these people. So um, I teach meeting facilitation in the mornings and I teach interpersonal and we talk about a lot of interviewing skills and that sort of thing in the afternoon. And I've taught other, I've taught pretty much all the comm studies classes, but um, we do a lot of, um, over the last year I've been teaching online and we've been done, doing a lot of written brainstorming with Google Docs and it's anonymous. And that can be a really helpful thing to really depersonalize ideas. Um, and there's a lot of problem solving techniques that we use that sort of like, hey, let's have a group write up over here and then go over here and write up a thing. And it sort of takes the um, personalization out of something, some stuff, because the problem often is that they're used to that aggressive personality coming down on the person, right? And saying that, you know, you're terrible because you have this idea or whatever. Uh, and so creating a space where you can brainstorm without judgment, but then you're going to go through and systematically work through solutions for things is one way that can be really, really helpful. And so you can do that exercise where you're doing written brainstorming using Google Docs online, or you can do, you know, whiteboard, everyone can put up their ideas, and then we're going to work through the solutions. Um, there's a lot of different facilitation techniques that can help work through some of those things. Um, and you can do it one on one, right? Like, hey, we're going to write down, these are the pros, and these are the cons. And, it, you know, everyone can write them down. And that's often feels safer than speaking up for people. Um, but then, you know, just opening up the conversation, right? Like, what would it take? And I do this at the beginning of all my small group classes. What would it take for everyone to feel safe in here? Um, what could we do to make it more comfortable for people? And that's a way to acknowledge the elephant in the room that it's going to be there. Why don't we work on trying to make it feel better for people and trying to go around the circle? You know, like have everyone say something, being as inclusive as possible can really help a lot with bringing people in to the conversation and just, yeah, making rules for not putting people down or making things. And especially if people have triggers around debating, which people often do, right? Um, well, what are ways we can make things more like a dialogue, right? Or more like a problem-solving exercise. Yeah, that's great. Let's take it more on the personal side. As we head into the holidays here, Thanksgiving, Christmas, I'm thinking of individuals who are dreading going into those places where they probably, you know, often are in a place with, if not majority people who disagree with them, you know, sometimes people go home and it's like, oh, there's this whole space here. Or maybe just 50-50, maybe there's just going to be a lot of disagreement and I, I always feel that that's really unfortunate. Like, this is a time for family and connection, and it's supposed to be, but it can devolve pretty quickly into side-taking and arguments and things. So, maybe let's take it from different perspectives. Let's go from kind of the accommodator side of things. What advice might you give to someone who's kind of dreading going into these spaces where they don't really have a voice and they don't really, you know, it's a lot of role. I know when I go home, I fit into the youngest kid role and it, you just kind of like go crazy like wait what happened what, what happened to my personality it just changed so for the accommodator who's thinking about i have to go into this thanksgiving dinner where i don't agree but i don't ever feel comfortable speaking up what are some 
practices you might give to them or just advice? Well, for one thing, like set ground rules ahead of time with people before you go into the event. Like, you know, say I'm not comfortable coming unless we don't talk politics or we don't talk particular things, right? And and stand by that. Don't go if people don't agree to that, right? Um, if things and that's appropriate to like put in writing, right? You don't yeah. have to call up your parents. You could send them an email and say, "Hey, you listen, could. yeah." Or I mean, okay. if depending on how it's more comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Right. And then there may be some situations where it's appropriate to stay away, too. And that's an important thing. Like, if this is going to get into a situation where it really brings up a lot of trauma for you and your body's reacting strongly to it, um, then it might be okay just to stay away. But yeah, if the people agree to the ground rules ahead of time, uh, make sure that you have, you know, have friends that you can call on, you know, if you need a break from it, make sure you work with the people in the situation that are the easiest to get along with and have people uh, there's the um do you know the strategy that women used in the obama white house to to deal with okay so they were they were being ignored early in obama's first first term and so they made this agreement that they would all build on what each other said and speak up on behalf. So if someone said something, they would mirror that and then build on top of it the best they could, agree with what they could in the situation. And collectively, it worked. They kept doing that through the first term and more women got hired and there was a much more equal space by the second term. And so if you've got allies in the situation, make agreements with them as to how to like deal with potential terrible situations there, right? Um, see if you can have a strategy like that, right? Okay, this is how we're going to distract from the situation or this is how we're going to build on each other if we do go into that, right? And then have a have a rule for yourself. I'm going to go home if it gets this bad, right? Um, and I'm gonna, I have this way to get out of this situation so that you have an escape plan for yourself as you need to. That's great. That's really practical. So what about the flip side? So if you're two, – two things. One, I think the flip side is if you're an aggressor and you're just aware, like, I just want to make space for people. Like, I find enjoyment in these conversations, so I want to have – you know, maybe some sparring with people, but I know maybe some other people aren't going to be up for that. How do we, how do we both win in that situation? Let's start, maybe start there. I mean, if you know that there's someone who particularly shuts down in that kind of situation, reach out to them ahead of time and ask them what's comfortable for them. Honestly, if any of the people who'd ever been like that in my life (laughs) would seriously do that, like that would make a huge difference. Because one of the problems with my situations were that like people didn't they would have never thought to do that right and they would have never like been willing to negotiate on any of those things which is why some of those other things become necessary right um because people won't reach out and they won't try to make things more comfortable and they won't you know talk over hey what are the what is over the line 
right? And so, yeah, reaching out beforehand might be helpful before you get into that kind of situation and setting rules before you get into the debate. Like, well, what would be comfortable for you in this situation or what wouldn't? Um, what could make you feel safe? That would be really helpful. And then just like really watching the verbal and nonverbal dynamics very carefully. And if someone looks like they're shutting down or disconnecting, um, offering to just stop the conversation as needed, because it's very possible that someone may go into freeze mode at any point. Is there something to just, I'm just thinking of the work I do with families where something just really practical of even being aware of how much airtime you're taking up and being able to ask questions instead of just making proclamations and statements over and over where no one else has time or space to enter the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Being aware of airtime um, and even like if you're going to have a thing, setting a timer, they do that in debates, right? Setting a timer, making sure each person has equal time, that can be really helpful. Or, you know, using some object as a talking stick, like when I have the, the talking stick, you can get one of the facilitation techniques I have has a bell, give someone a bell. So give the quiet person a bell, right? Like I'm feeling uncomfortable in this situation. I can, I have the power to disrupt this, right? And I don't even have to speak up. I just have to hit this bell, right? Or this bell and, and app. And sometimes I think, yeah, families in particular, but I think any social group, there's some like awkwardness around laying down things formally. It's almost like it's better if it's just organic. It's But I feel like for me, again, with families, when I set up these ground rules or we have these formalities, it becomes normal after a year. It becomes normal after several conversations. And then they're like, well, I, I, we couldn't do it without this. Like, these are great tools. So I think there's something to just lean into the awkwardness. So it feels formal, but that doesn't make it wrong. It doesn't make it, you know, unhelpful. No, no. And I certainly see that in my classes. Um, when we learn these facilitation techniques and read about them, students are like, these feel really weird. <laughs> they feel really ushy-gushy. And I'm like, no, they increase in accountability and they try to keep us safe and discussing difficult things. And, you know, a few weeks in, they're starting to recognize, oh, yeah, this is actually really helpful. And it's helping everyone feel not attacked. And, you know, this, this has a method. Method, right it's not just when it's yeah it, it reminds me of like uh, seat belts in like the 1940s and 50s it's like why oh this is super uncomfortable this is awkward why would I do this like oh and then later you're like oh because it saves so many lives and you know it's not a big deal like it just becomes a habit at some point exactly so, yeah okay so the last kind of dynamic I want to talk about for a few minutes if we can is Okay, let's, you know, we talked about these, if there are differences between kind of the accommodators, the aggressors, but what about if two people are, they're good with having these conversations, but sometimes they take it too far, like feelings do get hurt, but they do like the conversation. Are there some maybe techniques or things to help people? And maybe that we've already set some of them, like setting ground rules, but are, is there anything else for people who really do enjoy the debate and they like to disagree with each other, but they don't necessarily know how to contain it in a way that's always fruitful. Yeah, um, I would definitely maybe keep track of the, the buttons that get pushed for you, right? Like when it gets over the line for you or someone else, just keep track of that. And then 
work that back into the ground rules, right? And, you know, have some rules about, like, what happens if someone steps over the line, you know? Like, do I have to buy them dinner, you know? <laughs> like, have some reparations set up, right? Or negotiate some reparations. Like, how do we deal with that, right? Yeah, that's a really important thing to be able to make sure that there can be roads to making things better again. I worked with a family once um, where we, because I always have kind of meeting expectations, like a list of rules, basically. And I say we can add things because every family has kind of their triggers, right? And so I had a family where their trigger was, it's not rocket science. So we literally had to put, you are not allowed to say that phrase because apparently it was a phrase that their dad used or something, but it triggered all of them. And so, and that's why they did it. They did it because they knew it would just put that dagger, right? This is not, it's not rocket science. This is obvious, right? So we had to put that phrase in their meeting, like expectations. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else, any other words of wisdom that we can send people off with here as we wrap up our time as they, again, this is coming out at an opportune time of, of a lot of holidays and a lot of conversations that are uncomfortable. And, you know, maybe even, can I ask you, just communication expert, how do you draw the line between this drive or kind of the moral imperative these days to stand up for what we believe? It's almost like it's it's almost unethical, it feels like, to go into a space these days and not say that you disagree if someone's saying something that you don't like um, politically or religiously. So where do you draw that line? Like wh- from a communication standpoint or an ethical standpoint in communications, like when is it okay just to, I know it's unbelievable, but people have wrong opinions all the time. Is it always like our ethical duty to, to speak up? And like, how do you draw that line? Like, uh, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, no. I mean, honestly, if I'm not taking care of myself in the situation is where I draw the line. If I'm only looking out for speaking up for things and I'm not taking care of my own and the other people's well-being, but especially my own because I've been trained not to take care of my own. So that's where the line is really important for me. And maybe for recovering aggressors, it's about if I'm not taking care of the other person, right? Um, And I'm only taking care of myself and my need to be right, right? Um, And just recognizing... um, yeah, it's it's really important to take care of ourselves and our own limits. Uh, I had a wise person say to me not that long ago, the fact that you have a capability doesn't mean you always have a capacity. You may be fully capable. <laughs> this is important for people with PhDs, but people in general, who especially perfectionists, recovering perfectionists, right? Um, just because you have the capability to do something doesn't mean you aren't human with limitations in your capacities. And it's okay to take care of yourself. And in taking care of yourself, then you'll be able to continue speaking up for the future, right? It's okay to rest. It's not your responsibility to fix everything in the world. Um, But as you're able, yeah, keep speaking up and keep taking care of your energy so that you can keep speaking up as much as you can. Um, that's really important because there is a lot of injustice out there. And it is important to have our voices heard where we need where we're able to do that in a reasonable way. Um, but it's also really important to take care of our own. Our bodies aren't designed to be stressed all the time. <laughs> um, and it's really important to take care of our, our own 
serenity as much as we can as well and channel the stress responses in healthy ways when we can, but also decrease that in our body so that we can be as healthy as possible. Because ultimately, this is all about health. <laughs> right. And it's it's interesting just hearing you talk about it. I keep coming back to it's it's pretty subjective. Like you could look at something and we could be behaving in the same way, but for you, it might be really unhealthy, but for me, it might be really healthy or vice versa. And that's important because I think we can get judgmental about other people. And really, it's just know your own motivations, know your own limit. Like, where do you draw that line? Some people have, and it's, it can be, it could be changed by the day. My capacity might be different today than it is tomorrow. And so, we just have to be really in tune with our own selves and our own needs and our own abilities and yeah, that's just so hard, I feel like, because we're so, we want objective things that we can judge and have standards by. And it's great to know that sometimes it's just checking in with yourself. It is. And like, it's also helpful to know that sometimes this is objective, uh, because if you don't take care of your own stress responses, it can turn into disease and it can turn into trauma and that can turn into disease. Um, and there's lots of neurobiological neurobi research around that. Right. And um, I've been reading a book called When the Body Says No by Gaber Mate, where he talks about how we can repress our emotions so far that we don't even feel our own stress responses. And that can turn into things like fibromyalgia and breast cancer and like there's lots of really interesting re and disturbing research around these sorts of things and so when you think about the fact that that can be the outcome of like the avoider accommodator thing right that is a really important thing to pay attention to so paying attention to the way that stress shows up in your body and taking time to look for it if you're one of those people that's been trained to suppress it and that it's not okay to have it, it's okay to take time to heal. It's very okay. And it's important to look for those symptoms, especially if you're one of those people, um, because it may not all be physiological. Some of it may be coming up from it. Everything's connected, right? Um, and the social is a really big part of this. So paying attention to the ways in which and learning how to work that stress through your body, that's a really important priority. Well, wonderful. I feel like I have so much to be processing and thinking about now for uh, a good amount of time. So thank, thank you, DS, for taking so much time and for helping us understand all of these different dynamics that go into conversation. I just thought I was, you know, yelling at my uncle and it turns out there's just so much more <laughs> to it. There's a lot than, there. <laughs> so thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for taking time to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please pick up a copy of the book, Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. And if you like it, rate and review it where you can online. If you don't, keep that to yourself. I don't need anyone else to speak the truth and love to me about the book. Thanks so much.